Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with events of violence that may be disturbing to some. Listener discretion is advised. A road rage incident that quickly escalated to murder. The killer claiming self-defense and the victim's family still seeking answers 30 years later. This is Method and Madness, Episode 12, The Road Rage Murder. I'm your host, Dawn Gandhi. It was Warwick, Rhode Island. Two men's paths would cross in an instant, and only one of them would walk away. Let's dive in. To say that 27-year-old Adam Emery loved his car would be an understatement. As a man considered to be a neat freak, he doted on it. It was his baby. Cleaning and polishing his 1985 Black Thunderbird wasn't a chore. It was an obsession. It was so important to him that the car itself is a key character in this story. Adam grew up in Rhode Island in an upper-middle-class family, went on to study at Rhode Island College, and joined the National Guard. He met his wife, Elena, at a club in Rhode Island, and those who knew them described their relationship as the perfect couple, completely devoted to each other, and head over heels in love. Adam worked as a junior exec at a plastics company, and his wife, Elena, was in accounting. They were a good-looking couple chasing the quote-unquote American dream, success, which was particularly important to Elena as she had emigrated from Italy when she was a child and watched her parents struggle to make their way financially in the United States. And who knew this was even a thing, but in a case that so heavily involves cars, it's worth mentioning. Apparently, there was prestige in Rhode Island in the license plate number you received. Having a low number was considered high class, and having letters that symbolized your initials was key. And through connections with a government employee, Adam Emery was able to get a license plate that said AE-70, and his wife, Elena, got a matching plate that said EE-70. A trivial detail, perhaps, but as the facts of this case are rolled out, one that says a lot about the people involved. Let's get into this. It was a summer night, Friday, August 31st, 1990, at what was once a popular amusement park in Rhode Island, Rocky Point, which, along with being an occasional venue for musical artists from Janis Joplin to Weird Al, attracted locals with its roller coasters, rides, and food. That night, a pleasant 73 degrees, Adam, his 29-year-old wife Elena, and Elena's sister and brother-in-law were dining at a seafood stand eating clam cakes, a popular dish in the area, chowder, and drinking a few beers while overlooking the Narragansett Bay. After their meal, the foursome returned to Adam's Thunderbird just in time to feel it get bumped, as it was being sideswiped by another car which didn't stop to exchange insurance information. A casual night out for dinner quickly turned. Adam's instant anger escalated into rage as the other three passengers urged Adam to follow after the car, which had now disappeared down the dark road. Adam turned the key and started up his prized possession and hit the gas, speeding off in the same direction. 
Only moments passed when Elena shouted out from her spot in the passenger seat. There it is, as a pair of taillights appeared in the distance. That's the car, she said. Adam accelerated until he was on the other car's tail, crossing into the left lane so he was right next to it. Elena rolled down her window so Adam could shout to the driver of the red Ford LTD, Pull over, you hit my car. The driver of the other car continued moving through the neighborhood of Connecticut, the chase lasting a total of 1.7 miles before the red Ford was run off the road by Adam, both cars ending up on the lawn of a residence. While stopped, Adam slammed his car into park and opened his door to get out and confront the other driver. As he was exiting, Elena told him to take the knife and handed Adam a military-style double-edged knife that was located in the pocket of the door. Adam approached the other car, which included the driver, a young male, and two passengers. Adam was yelling at the driver and began leaning into the car window when the driver, trying to get away, put his car in reverse and drove backwards in an effort to distance himself from the enraged man. Adam thrust his upper body into the driver's side window, screaming at him to stop, being dragged 1,300 feet. Adam, gripping the knife in his hand, stabbed the driver with the knife once in the heart, and finally, the car came to a stop, crashing backward into a large rock. Adam retreated away from the car, and the owner of the house, a prison guard named Bruce Bishop, came outside to see what the commotion was. He immediately saw Adam and told him to drop the knife. Adam did, and asked the man for a glass of water, while stammering, I stabbed him. Meanwhile, the stabbing victim, the driver of the Red Ford LTD, had stumbled out of his car and collapsed onto the ground, covered in blood. The scene was chaotic. Two cars stopped haphazardly, Adam's passengers stunned, and the victim's passengers frantic and confused. An off-duty state trooper, Lieutenant Kevin Hopkins, was at his home just down the street and heard what sounded like a crash, telling his wife to dial 911 as he headed to the scene to assist. Once he arrived, he saw a man on the ground losing quite a lot of blood next to a car that was up on the lawn of the house, and another man nearby, sitting on the home's front steps, drinking from a water glass, his shirt covered in blood. He quickly realized this was not the scene of an accident and was told by Elena Emery, he's been stabbed. Warwick Police and Rescue arrived shortly afterward, and Adam Emery was taken under arrest by Sergeant Fred Pierce, who knew Adam from the time they served together in the National Guard. The driver of the other car, the stabbing victim, was identified by his passengers as Jason Bass, known as Jay. He was taken by ambulance, but died before they reached the hospital. Back at the scene, police were piecing together what had just occurred through witnesses, including the passengers of the two cars. Police understood this as a road rage incident, but while investigating, they realized that 
Jay's car showed no damage indicating that he had sideswiped Adam's car. Paint chips taken from the dent in Adam's car, which were left there by the car in question, were examined. Through forensic analysis, it was later determined that the paint chips that were on Adam's car didn't match Jay's car, and it was concluded that it was not Jay's car that struck Adam Emery's. It had been another car altogether that, to this day, has never been identified. Jay Bass, on a night out with friends, spent the last few minutes of his life in utter fear as he was chased down, confronted, and stabbed to death, all because he was mistaken for somebody else. Jay was just 20 years old, born July 22, 1970, in Providence, a young man that had dreams of opening a diner and who had worked several jobs in the food industry, from a cook at Burger King to a donut fryer at Mr. Donuts. Jay was one of seven kids born into a working-class family who had lived a relatively normal life in Rhode Island. He loved his mom and his nieces and nephews and quite literally gave a man the shoes off of his feet when a homeless man came into the donut shop where he worked barefoot. On that terrifying night in August, Jay had plans to stop his sister Diana's house for dinner, but first had picked up his cousin Joshua— Then, the pair drove to Rocky Point Amusement Park to pick up their friend John. It was at that very moment that they were leaving the parking lot that another car was sideswiping Adam Emery's car. It was a sick twist of fate as that car took off at the same time that Jay Bass pulled out of the parking lot. As the trio were driving off in Jay's car, they started being tailed by a man driving a black Thunderbird who was obviously furious. Inside the car, Jay was glancing into his rearview mirror, puzzled and confused, and Joshua and John, his passengers, were turning around, looking backwards at the taillights that were dangerously close, the driver acting erratically. What's with this guy, they were asking aloud, getting more and more nervous about his intentions. The driver of the Black Thunderbird chased them for nearly two miles, shouting out the passenger's side window and getting so close that Jay had run off the road and ended up on a stranger's lawn. After Jay's car came to a stop, Joshua and John later said that Adam Emery, a man they didn't know, had approached the car yelling that Jay had hit his car and he was going to kick his ass. The situation quickly intensified as all Jay knew was that he wanted to get the hell away from this guy who was screaming, his face red, brandishing a knife. Adam, who was described by former co-workers as being skilled at conflict resolution, who had no criminal background, claimed self-defense and refused to take a plea deal that would grant him 20 years for manslaughter. His version of the events of that night were that he only chased the car to write down the license plate number to report it to police, and when he approached Jay's car, he just wanted to talk until Jay put the car in reverse, which led Adam to believe that Jay was going to run over his brother-in-law. According to Adam, he was only trying to turn off the ignition of the car when he jumped into the driver's side window. He had never planned on hurting anyone. 
Now, one could argue that nobody who brings a knife to a confrontation has no intention of harming anyone. While awaiting trial, his parents had put their home up as collateral, and theirs and Elena's families had raised enough money, $270,000, to have Adam released on bail. He went back to work at the plastics company until his trial began in the fall of 1993. The public was particularly struck by Adam's demeanor in court, his ease in playing the victim, never once displaying remorse or showing any realization that his actions were what caused Jay Bass's death. And Elena's family's disdain and verbal hatred that was displayed toward Jay Bass's family was shocking. There were many onlookers that say, that the tension between the Emery families and the Bass families was palpable, and that the members there supporting Adam looked down at Jay's family, which apparently they perceived as lower class, like it was somehow Jay's fault or his family's fault that Adam Emery was on trial for murder. After all, Jay Bass had a license plate number that was not a low number, and therefore his status was considered undesirable. Anyway, Adam Emery's parents seemed more focused on the hit and run and the penalties that should be made tougher on offenders who commit hunt hit and runs. More focused on that than on the murder that their son committed, emphasizing that he didn't realize it was the wrong car that he had approached as if that detail makes it justified. Finally, after a very publicized trial, the jury deliberated, and on November 10, 1993, Adam's 31st birthday, he was found guilty of second-degree murder. After the verdict was read, Elena's brother shouted, scumbags, at Jay's family, and Elena's mother dropped to her knees, praying and exclaiming that her son-in-law wasn't a bad person. Cameras were allowed inside the courtroom and captured a conversation between Adam and Elena directly after the verdict was read. He, with little emotion, while she was clearly upset doing most of the talking, at one point she's seen sobbing, burying her head into her husband's shoulder. Although it had been Elena's idea to chase after Jay's car, and she was the one who handed Adam the knife, Elena was never charged with anything. A while later, the couple left the court together. Adam was allowed out on bond while awaiting sentencing. He faced up to 25 years. The couple spent that afternoon together, shopping at a local sporting goods store in Cranston, where they bought two black cotton sweatsuits, two pairs of 10-pound ankle weights, two pairs of 10-pound wrist weights, and two pairs of 20-pound waist weights. They then went to eat dinner at a Burger King. Later that night, Elena's dark green Camry was found abandoned in the middle of a lane on the Claiborne Pell Bridge in Jamestown, Rhode Island. When police responded to the call about the car, they found several items of note inside, indicating that this was the Emery's car. On the front seat was Adam Emery's driver's license, a receipt from Kelly's Sporting Goods for $240 detailing what had been purchased there, and two suits in the back seat, a men's pinstripe suit 
and a woman's lavender suit, the outfits the couple had been wearing in court that afternoon. Figuring the couple had jumped from the bridge, the Narragansett Bay was searched for their bodies, but nothing initially turned up. What looked like a double suicide still needed to be investigated. Law enforcement were not making any assumptions about what had gone on that night. After the couple vanished from the bridge, police looked back at that video footage from the courtroom, those moments after the verdict when Elena was seen speaking to Adam. They hired a lip reader to see if they could find out what Elena had said to her husband to get some insight into what their plan may have been. The lip reader studied the video multiple times and determined that Elena had said to Adam, quote, We will do what we originally said. You promised me. We should have done this before. Three days after their disappearance, Adams and Elena's families received letters from the couple. The contents, which are not public, but a portion of Adams' letter read, I was at a total loss about what happened in court today. We are not afraid to die, and we look forward to it. Free at last. I write this letter with a clear conscience. Headlines written over the next several weeks showed just how skeptical the public were on what really happened to the Emery couple. Newsweek released an article titled, Mystery, a Double Suicide, Smacks of a Scam. What was starting to become clear was that there were things about the apparent suicide that just didn't add up. At the sporting goods store that afternoon, after the pair had left the court, Adam had balked at the price of the items they were buying. Odd behavior for someone who was hours away from never needing money again. The last meal eaten by the couple was at Burger King. Some people may not choose a Whopper as their final meal, and those who knew the Emery's didn't think that added up. Law enforcement and reporters in the area were leery, considering that perhaps the Emery's had staged their deaths, written letters as goodbye to their families, and walked off that bridge together, hand in hand, to live a life together as fugitives. A way for Elena to stay with her soulmate and a way for Adam to avoid spending the rest of his life in prison. A man that friends said would get eaten alive in jail. The following year, much of that skepticism started to dissipate as Elena's remains were discovered on August 30th, 1994, the four-year anniversary of the murder. Her skull was found when it got caught in a commercial fishing net. Although exhaustive searches have been conducted over the years, Adam Emery's remains were never found, and no trace of him has ever shown up on law enforcement's radar. So where is he? What are the possible conclusions here? What could have happened to Adam Emery? Let's break it down. You have a couple that adored each other, that didn't want to be torn apart. Elena reminding her husband of his promise to her. So, armed with their wearable weights, they jumped to their deaths, following through on the pact they made to die together rather than living apart. Adam choosing death over prison life. Elena choosing to spend eternity with her husband rather than living without him. It's possible that Adam's body has just never been found. A second possibility is Adam 
pulled a Richard Kimball jumping off the dam and somehow survived the jump from the bridge, swam to shore and escaped, which seems far-fetched and the most unlikely option, considering he'd certainly be severely injured from the impact. We're not talking a small-town country bridge over a creek. This bridge is huge, a four-lane suspension bridge, the longest in New England. Its height from the roadway to the water is approximately 215 feet, and it's suspended over the Narragansett Bay in Rhode Island, which covers 147 square miles. With a body hitting water from that height, it's similar to hitting concrete. It's a very slim chance he'd survive, and if he survived, it's improbable that he'd be able to swim to shore and walk away, let alone flee without medical help. A third option is that Elena sacrificed herself for her husband. She offered to die in order to save him. If her body was found, authorities would assume they both died, and she would have saved her husband and allowed him to run free. In this option, she's giving him freedom by giving herself death. I find this unlikely, and here's why. Take the lip reader's interpretation of what, of what Elena said to Adam in the courtroom that day, that they were going to do what they planned to do, what he promised her. Is it possible that what Elena wanted before the verdict was to die, have Adam fake his death and to let him be free? I guess it's a romantic in a Greek tragedy sort of way, but not very realistic. There's also the possibility that while the couple planned on jumping to their deaths, Adam chickened out at the last minute, and while he intended on jumping from the bridge, had second thoughts and then escaped, walking off the bridge that night, a fugitive on the run who has never been seen alive. There are theories out there that neither of them jumped that night and that Elena died months later somehow with her body being dumped in the water. And finally, there's the possibility that Adam pulled a you-jump-first, agreeing with Elena that they'd follow through on their pact, but fully intending on watching his bride plummet off the bridge, knowing that authorities would assume he was dead while in actuality he would flee and live his life as a fugitive. In order for this option to be in actuality, Adam would have to go to great lengths to fool his own wife, only to abandon her and let her die. So, with all of those options, what is the most likely? What's the most unlikely? What makes the most sense? What I think, probably that he jumped, died, and his body hasn't been found. What do you think happened to Adam Emery? In 2004, the Superior Court declared Adam Emery legally dead, but the FBI still considers his disappearance an open investigation, receiving and looking into all leads. Like Deputy Gerard in The Fugitive, they want to see a body in order to believe Emery is dead. As recent as 2017, the FBI tweeted out that Adam Emery is still a wanted man for unlawful flight to avoid prosecution and for second-degree murder. An age progression photo was to be released to show what Adam Emery may look like today, but we're still waiting on that to come to fruition. What's so frustrating about this case, I mean, besides the fact that a completely innocent man was stabbed to death, 
is the freedom Adam Emery had after the guilty verdict, that a convicted murderer walked away, that a judge had no concern that this man could be a flight risk, and that he was deserving of stepping outside into the sun for another moment, what would have been for at least a whole month before sentencing. And as our story began at the Narragansett Bay, so it ended at the Narragansett Bay. Since the verdict in 1993, Jay Bass's family have suffered every day, never coming to terms with the events that led to Jay's murder and the salt in the wound that his murderer never paid for his crime. Not knowing whatever became of Adam Emery eats at them to this day, and in interviews that Jay's brother and sister have participated in, their pain is still present. They just want answers, closure. At the time of his disappearance, Adam Emery was described as being six foot one, with brown hair and blue eyes. He would be 58 years old as of the airing of this episode. Any information regarding his whereabouts can be provided to your local FBI office or American embassy or consulate. The car that sideswiped Adam Emery's car was never identified, and it's unknown if the driver has ever realized the snowball effect that they left behind. Elena Emery is buried at St. Anne Cemetery in Cranston, a headstone with both her and Adam's names marking her gravesite. Jay Bass's father died in 2019 with no closure on where his son's killer is. Jay Bass would have been 51 years old this summer. Thank you for listening to Method and Madness. If you like the podcast, go ahead and leave a five-star review. Every review really does help. You can find me on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please email me at methodandmadnesspod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with dark and disturbing subject matter. For crisis support, text HELLO to 741-741.